I don't know that we have the room for it in this episode. See, that was a space reference. Ah, the room for it. Space in space. My name is Nathan Paletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What are we talking about on the Design Games Podcast this week, Will? Did you bring my tape measure? Because this week we're talking about physical space and game design and how that can develop into abstract spaces, relationship spaces, and dramatic spaces. I find space a very a very fruitful way to think about game design in general because it helps me visualize and kind of manage what are sometimes very abstract ideas right. before they're solidified in play. Yeah, I think that's one of the advantages of being specific about things like distance and geographical or physical relationship is that even though those can be just descriptions, just evocative descriptions right. of things, I think as humans, it's easy, it's easy for us to visualize things that are described in concrete terms, like these two kingdoms are neighbors, or right. in order to get to this place, you have to travel for three days. As a player, either you can choose to explore that, right? Like, oh, we have three days. What are all the things that I can do as a character? What are all my, like, can I can I improve a skill? Can I do some kind of role? Can I have some kind of scene? You know, so there's a, a potential window for, for doing something, which is different from a short journey. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. The ways in which the characters can be narratively closer to each other than the players are, or that the characters can be in the, in the gameplay, mm-hmm. and they're in the same world. The players are all op- living in reality, but they're living essentially in two different states or two different cities or two different countries or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Because like we talked about with time, there's a lot of abstraction and elasticity, and there's a lot of kind of choices that we get to make mm-hmm. about what, what space is literal, what space is not, whether or not does initiative go around the table because it's the order you sat down in, Mm-hmm. Does, it, does it bounce around based on numbers or something? And I think there's this really interesting aspect that is a little bit underutilized in games right now, which is the fact that physical space between players matters. It still matters a whole lot, in my opinion. I think that there's a big difference between playing via a chat window or playing mm-hmm. on Roll20 or playing on Twitch and playing in person. It's not that one is hi- hierarchically above the other one. Right. It's that what we're learning. And when for a time, I think that live play at the table was just functionally superior just because of the fact that you could actually have the conversation and the right. technology wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But now I think that's... No, the technology's there. It's there. So yeah. it's now they're just two different kind of forms of play mm-hmm. and they have they have different strengths and weaknesses, but they're no longer... They're, they're parallel now. To me, they're, it's more akin to playing in a home game versus playing at a convention mm-hmm. where it's like there's some kind of best practices that might be a little different and you might bring a different approach or a different plan because you know the the whatever restrictions you're going to be working with. Yeah. I mean, I play games online with people who aren't in my state right. on the regular. Right, exactly. And I, and first of all, how cool is that? Yeah. And the fact that that you you and and your friends, you know, on one of the coasts can be playing in the same game and your characters could be back to back against monsters, mm-hmm. fighting against monsters while you while you and this friend are or you and handfuls of friends are all over the planet. So on the one hand, we're kind of bridging that gap of space between players. Right. But each game also has to deal with a little bit the questions of the spaces between characters or mm-hmm. the spaces of, of how the fictional space is modeled. And mm-hmm. I feel like w- there's some breakthroughs in that. And there's, a, there's a lot of changing in how we, well, we respect that, but, but not as fast as the technology is changing. There's a couple layers to it, similar to talking about time and how that's abstracted and the difference between real time and, and fictional time. You have your real space, whatever physical constraints or opportunities are afforded by the you know space your bodies occupy. 
the fictional space that's referential to how the characters are positioned against or with each other. Like, are you fighting back to back? Are you all in the same room of the dungeon? Are you on the spaceship while the other person is going to the center of the earth? Because this game is is a thematic unity. It's not a physical unity of play or whatever. There's another layer of the fictional space, which is the fictional geography of the world that you're in, whether that's we're playing on real time earth. So we use Google maps to establish and, and discover where our characters are going or whether it's Glorantha and you're using a map of any of a number of editions or, you know, you still have the, the Planescape big poster map that came in the box set. And like you use that for everything, even though you're not actually playing D&D, but the map is so cool. Right. So you use that for all your plane spanning adventures. All three of those have like a kind of a, you know, you can kind of draw arrows from one to the other about how the real space might affect how the characters are positioned and, and then the fictional geography affects the characters. But right. does the fictional geography affect the player space? Like it, it might. I'm thinking here or the other way where I'm thinking if you have a game where the players establish like we are, we come from this point on the map or my character comes from this region and your character comes from this desert. What does that mean? What kind of cultures do we come from? How have we traveled over all this space to meet? It it can create more, more uh, useful questions for play. Right. It can be as dryly cut as the one square equals five feet notion of Mm -hmm. abstraction, which is, I think, a useful place to start with the notion of the, you know, like we think about D&D's five foot step, or we think about the reach of a weapon or whatever. And these are very specific utility answers. Right. But that, yeah, it can become as broad as, so I'm from a different plane of existence as your character. Mm-hmm. So how do we interact when we meet? How long did it take us to get to this common inn? Do we not just talk differently, which is sort of a shortcut for role players anyway, right? Where one of us uses Burke and one of us doesn't for as, a, as some kind of mm-hmm. jargon, but is also, do we hear differently? Do I see different light than you? Like how different are we? And the, and, and the dramatic potential of that space. Mm. The difference between the, the small, medium, or large space that a monster might take up versus the narrative space mm. that it has, essentially like if you were doing a relationship map, mm-hmm. how big a circle do I draw for this character? Right, because like how many the, arrows come off it? Yeah. The, the the dragon that you fight at the end of the adventure might be functionally a MacGuffin. Like right. it's just there so that you have something to fight at the end of the adventure. Right. So its narrative mass might actually be very small, while the goblin chief that you befriended on the way and ends up becoming a key ally and comes back over and over in later adventures while being very you know only occupying a five foot square right. then has this much greater fictional he gets mass. larger and larger on the relationship yeah map. but great lots of great games do lots of great stuff with relationship maps of course like monster hearts we did some of that in vampire uh to a certain mm-hmm. extent but is where you start plucking the lines between the characters like strings to hear the sounds they'll make and you can make chords and so hitting these different mm-hmm. lines in different ways makes different situations fun to play again the rivals have different have different attitudes to the goblin chief or whatever mm-hmm. so that notion already of how that i mean that the relationship map is sort of the, the well, highly abstracted space of gaming right i mean that's a really great place to look about uniting the physical space with your fictional space right because yeah. the because what you're doing when you make a relationship map and if you're not familiar with this idea or or you haven't played a game that does this there's a lot of games that do this in a lot of different ways usually kind of tuned to what 
you know other stuff in the game but a couple good touch points for for it are do you do a formal one in fiasco or is it more you establish a relationship with everyone well well, just with your neighbors so part of what's interesting about it is that the relationship map is always related to the actual physical the real physical space of the table because you don't Mm -hmm. map across from you until things might naturally emerge if those characters Mm -hmm. are in scenes together uh and kingdom where you you come up with the kingdom first and then you make characters and then you have a relationship with each character to the side and in that game actually your seating order matters because the scene progression is kind of metered to make sure that everyone has the same amount of ability to do the different kinds of scenes. So it says in the book, if you're going to play a multiple session game, make sure you know where everyone's sitting so that you all sit in the same seat so that you don't interrupt the, you know, you don't give someone a double turn or, or someone gets, gets a turn clipped out from your seating arrangement. Right. But some other touch point games for relationship maps are... Uh, Sorcerer in the Sorcerer's Soul is like where is where Ron Edwards dives. I'm pretty sure it's Sorcerer's Soul, though he it, it, it's a part of Core Sorcerer, uh, where he really dives into like why do you make relationship map? What's a good one versus what's a kind of kind of just a, a, a abstract ap- exercise of one? What relationships do you need to map, and why are they important? And how do you use that material in play? Uh, How We Came to Live Here by Brendan oh, Taylor yes. has a great relationship map mechanic yes. where you the sheet for it is supposed to be a circle and you put your characters in the circle and then there's key NPCs in the circle as well and you draw lines to indicate relationships. There's some procedural element to it that makes it non-deterministic. Like it, you can kind of end up with relationships that you didn't anticipate having and then those matter strongly in play because you're you're playing a, a, a First Nations or uh, Indigenous people kind of mythic tribe and so you relationships to the men and women in your community really matter did you ever play technoir jeremy keller's technoir i have not played it it has a great relationship map set up in which uh as your story progresses as your adventure progresses characters can kind of call in favors or reveal things during play to change the relationship map so that it's like look i can get us the software we need to hack into this mega corporation's mainframe, mm. all I have to do is draw a line between me and this NPC, at which point now there's a vector for that NPC to hurt me. Mm-hmm. But I get this benefit, but the NPC can use it against me later or whatever. And so it, it, it doesn't just have the relationship map building at the beginning. It like, I mean, like a, a, a lot of the games we're talking about, but also then develops that over play in a way right. that's really exciting because it keeps it from being static, like, mm-hmm. like Ron Edwards is warning about in, in Sorcerer and like he's addressing in Sorcerer, is that, that aspect of not making it boring. One way that right. it automatically becomes not boring is by being reactive to play. Right, yeah, because this is a thing. Some games incorporate the relationship map as a procedure of play, right. like Technoir and like Undying, which is mm. Paul Riddle's uh, Diceless Vampire the Masquerade homage vampire game, which uses a relationship map as a cyclical part of play where you, you do it at the beginning and then you're very specifically instructed to update it at the end of every session, scratch out stuff that no longer exists, draw new lines and arrows, and in fact, to, to, to keep multiple versions so that you can go, you know, you can kind of flip through them and see how this has changed over time. Which also I always thought would be a great, not just to harken back to time a little bit, but to use those layers of versions to do flashbacks because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're freaking vampires. Yeah. They've been alive or they've been right. walking around how long? So. Yeah, because in that game, like you play, like the session is kind of like, here's what happens in one night or a couple nights. And then you go through a, and here's what happens in the months, years, or centuries in between these important moments in our in our immortal lives. So yeah. your relationship map changes over centuries. 
in in play, which is pretty pretty cool. Yeah. And also something cool about that is that his quick start for that it comes with a relationship map, so you can play pre gens, and it's all Seattle after the Great Fire in eighteen eighty nine, I think. So it's a it's a it's a fraught situation. And then you're supposed to throw some tokens down on it and then cross off one of the NPC vampires that has one that lands on him so that some someone dies and that's like the big or is destroyed and that's the big inciting incident. And so that's uniting the this this metaphor of a map to these relationships that are non-spatial with a physical action using the space that you've created. Right. And uh, die drop tables do mm-hmm. this too where the ran- the randomness of the result is partly due to the die result, but it's also due to the proximity of the die where it lands on a on a piece of paper. Right. Whether that table is uh, literally a table or I mean like a like a chart or if it's you know some big circular web type thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like a city map. Yeah. Yeah, like like an undying. Yeah, and that's so there's like three layers of space at work there. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, I feel like it could be easy to think that we're being flippant or that we're being casual with the name, with the term space, with the notion of space here. But I think, I mean, I think the fact that we're in this sort of abstraction anyway is still totally demonstrating just how much, first of all, juice that concept has for play, but also how much the idea of distances and connectors between mm-hmm. whether they're characters or a character in a place or two places or whatever is so essential to understanding the playground, the the mm-hmm. extent, you know, what the RPG is creating as a place yeah. to roam. And a lot of this stuff is a layer that you can put on top of other games, right? Like you can make a relationship map for any game. You can make a die drop table to drive whatever thing you're doing as a GM or, or as a player if you mm-hmm. have some kind of power to affect the world. So reclaiming that as a design element can have a lot of power because then you are able to integrate whatever that gives you into the rest of your game, all the other procedures. Right. How different is your game if you have this like strong cultural context that all of your characters come out of and that drives a lot of their goals and play and stuff? How different is that game from if from if you just pick it off a list to if you roll on a random table that's printed in the book to everyone works together to draw a map and then drop something on the map and wherever their token lands, that's where their character's from. Right. 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 Like that those those procedures all create kind of a, a different level of engagement and specificity and um, player challenge, I think. Right. They can they can close the distance between the impossible number of paralyzing choices and making choices that are now interesting. Like once one choice is made, I'm from the the this desert of glass. Mm-hmm. We have one character here in the middle. Now everything else, the next one is is kind of in relationship to that, and the next one is in relationship to that, and it kind of shows how the more choices you make, and the more you detail, or the more options in a way that you winnow out, which is to say, no two char- let's say no two characters can be from the same place mm-hmm. because it's just the nature of the game. I'm from the desert of glass. Well, okay, so now I have one fewer choices, one fewer options to make than the first player did. So I choose to be from the granite mountains. Okay, so not only is that creating a dynamic already sort of between the two of our characters, especially mm-hmm. if the if the setting is rich in that kind of information, right? But it's changing all of the subsequent decisions. And so I think this is one of the areas where the metaphor of space and the literality of the the, the literal portrayal of space become really interesting mm-hmm. because they suggest a way of thinking about some of the choices that you're both presenting and kind of not presenting. Right? You can't be in two places at once right. ordinarily. Do you have games that you that you have played or admired that play with space in a in a distinct way 
whether whether by design or in homebrew, because I have a couple that I'm thinking of specifically, but I don't know that, like I'm thinking in part here about the difference between real and fictional technology. And we've talked a mm-hmm. little bit right about what real world technology does to, to collapse and, and bridge space. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's a lot of games that have subject matter that might interestingly interact with space or like again, night, which it sort of does where as the game progresses, you physically move territories mm-hmm. to indicate and you kind of can't go back. Cause it's the, the war is a, the, the real war. I think this is a, this is something that comes up in like sci-fi games. Yeah. Right. Because you start thinking about ship combat and ship travel and interstellar travel and how long does it take? What do we have in this setting that allows interstellar travel to happen on a scale that is still kind of comprehensible and easy for us to to wrap our hands around as as human beings in the year 2016. And sometimes that's hand wavium, right? It's like, oh, the ships just to have this ability to travel, don't worry about it. The narrative distance is more important than the right. than clocking how many how many uh cycles you spend in the ship. Um while others take a very pragmatic approach and and use that as a limiting factor of what the game is about. This is that's a exactly where I was headed is the notion of, of in part space travel and sci-fi games. And for example, the fact that I can think of a lot of games that either get great narrative and gameplay potential out of reliable distances, which is that I have a star map and I can look at it and say, okay, it'll, it'll take us four days to get there. So we can either just time jump it, montage it, or we can play four days of interesting adventures on the way or whatever we want to do. Mm-hmm. And games that just say, in the next scene you arrive. But I don't know a lot of games that actually structure, especially something as nebulous as space. Like compared to especially a fictional galaxy, let's say, and uses narrative space, narrative time in cahoots to say, how long does it take our ship to get to this alien planet? It will take one interstitial scene to get there. You have to play out a scene before you get there. Mm-hmm. Burning Empires has the the scene economy where you have a certain number of scenes, like you have color scenes, uh, oh, right, conflict right. scenes. I think there's four kinds. I I have not read Burning Empires in a long time. But you, you, there's an economy of like different kinds of scenes that that's a player economy. You choose like this is the kind of scene I want to do, and they have different things you can get in and out of them. So in that game, you can have a series of color scenes that are all like characters talking and interacting and kind of building up kind of bonuses for them for later. Yeah, and then you have a, a fight scene or ship combat or whatever, and then you have a a scene that's more about like the dramatic long-term, like are the, the, the Valen alien worm things, like how far do they get in their invasion? That's a great example. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that whole economy, but it's a, such a cool, I'm happy to have an excuse to go back and pull my copy of burning empires off the shelf and look at it anew. Mm-hmm. And that is very concerned with narrative impact of the scenes. Like yeah. I, I'm not sure how much language there's, there is about it in the, in the book, but my experience in playing demo and, and just kind of talking about it, is that there, there's some mechanical advantage to doing one kind of scene versus another kind of scene, depending mm-hmm. on your character's weaknesses and strengths. But then it's also paced so that you get this up and down of big moments, small moments, big impactful things that really matter to the overall invasion, right. small character moments, so that there's a, a beats to it. And it's not just like big thing, big thing, big thing over and over. We were playing a Star Trek RPG in the early 21st century. We were playing a Star Trek role-playing game. And, and if you think about it, in a way, Star Trek is a great RPG space because it has mm. vast interstellar travel for that. It has close but but not dogfighty starship combat if you want that. After Deep Space Nine, it has dogfighty starship combat if you want that. But then the transporter enables the ability to just say, okay, we let's just beam to the next scene mm-hmm. where this cool thing is happening. But you can also always have, oh, this planet, we have to fly a shuttle down there so we can draw out the time rate. It's all built it's, as a setting for narrative 
yeah, you elasticity. Can, you can play with all those settings, the you know, the trans the transporter malfunction. Yeah. Right. Not even adding in the the kind of ridiculous internal spaces of the holodeck and what that right. does to everything. Well, and then the fact that everyone's on a ship. Right. Right. Like there's a certain intimacy uh, of everyone being on this craft together that is counterpointing all these long distances that people can right. move. And that plays with two mechanics that aren't really game mechanics, but that I've always used in Star Trek games and games that are like Star Trek that play with space. One, of course, is that the communicator makes it possible to split the party without difficulty. If everybody has a communicator during standard operating procedures, it's mm-hmm. very easy to have somebody just tap their comm badge and say, hey, let's have a conversation, even though we're in two different scenes right now. Right. And that way everybody can be involved in a very meaningful way. Or you can just watch the feed from somebody's tricorder or sensor grid or whatever it is. The other thing that we used to do that I love and I, I, I want someday to have games of my own that take better advantage of this, but is that I used to get, since it's a ship and you're all on this, on the one hand, prefab, look-alike, similar ship. I mean, it's a Starfleet ship, let's say, so we have a sense of the, the, the corridors and the bulkheads and the walls and the doors and stuff. But you have your own room on that ship. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that room? Mm-hmm. Is it a spare, spartan, windowless thing? Is it, you know, right? and so it becomes an extension as a way, a, a dramatic space that reflects the character in a way that the player wants it to. It becomes a, another portrayal. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of an element from Primetime Adventures, mm-hmm. which is kind of the game that I've had the most Star Trek-y kind of game play with. And the structure of it, I think, is, is very drawn from like next generation style ensemble cast, A plot, B plot right. kind of thing. Every character in that game has or has the potential to have a personal set, which again is a physical location that you that has a, a gameplay use you can go you can you can set a scene on your personal set and that is kind of a, a way to refresh your some mechanical stuff but it also is a place where as players you get to demonstrate your character right, right. through right. your exposition of what your personal set is what and and what it means so whether it is your your crewman's quarters and how you've decorated it with the klingon you know, paraphernalia, even though you're from Earth because of your, your history with the Klingons or something. Right. Or whether your personal set is the holodeck because you're an escapist and you're trying to get out of your own head. and Or you're the chief engineer, so you have engineering. Or, right, yeah. right. So you can use it to, to back up your character or to co- counterpoint your character and give them an, an added dimension if it's something kind of counter to how you've described them. And what's interesting is that, again, that's coming back to describe a place. Mm-hmm both in the in the fictional space but also narratively this is your space yeah other people can't mess with your personal set they can't change it they can't destroy it um i mean it, it can change over time as you want it to but no one can can invade uh that narrative place that you establish and that's a a, a great example of not just player and character agency, which is that the characters respect the player agency the character might want to go and burn down somebody's personal set but unless the player says, yeah, let's burn down my personal set. just doesn't happen. It's mm-hmm. not on the table. But there's also the element in there, which is that a space without character involvement is kind of meaningless in, right. in, in, in most RPGs. I mean, there are a lot of games in which it's not, but as we get into having the R in an RPG, having these roles involved and the player agency, if there aren't things to do there, which generally means if there aren't people to talk to or interact with or vie for control with or romance or battle or mm-hmm. uh, agree with or heal or... Whatever it is, which is to say, I guess, also if it doesn't interact with actions that the players can take and actions right. that NPCs can threaten to take or promise to take, then a space is kind of empty. This kind of gets back to some of our conversation about setting, where the the character is what activates the space. 
Right. And because we're generally here talking about conversation games, right, where the medium is the conversation we're having, we, we are, are painting these pictures with words. So spending a lot of time in our conversation on a place that doesn't end up having an interaction with other elements of the game, that's kind of a waste. There, there's clearly a, a continuum between games where the fictional space is always subservient to the other priorities, like the dramatic priorities or, or the character effectiveness or you know whatever else you're prioritizing. On the other hand, are the games that prioritize the fictional space mm-hmm. and that's what drives other decisions, like a lot of set map, dungeon crawl kind of things or um, a hex crawl. Which I've never played a hex crawl. Oh man, I used to love doing that. So I'm not, I, I'm not equipped to to go into the, the the pros and cons. But from what I understand, right, like your map is is the game, and the 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 relationship of the hexes. You know, if there's a impenetrable mountain range in one hex, your choices are go around it and spend a bunch of resources to go and have adventures in these different hexes, one's wooded and one's swamp or whatever. Right. Or to like make a priority of figuring out how to get over the impenetrable mountains and there's your adventure. So there's that. And then there's also like, I'd put something like Torchbearer in this category where the space that is defined by your resources, but yeah, how many how many torches and candles you have, how, uh, how wounded people are, things like, am I 10 feet away? from the guy with the lantern or am I 30 feet away from the guy with the lantern? Right. That matters in Torchbearer. Am I around a corner or am I in the room? Those things really matter. And you make a lot of your mechanical decisions around trying to keep people together or distribute people in the most effective way. Right. Look, look at both the cycle. It's not quite a reward cycle, but it's close. But the way the cycle builds in something like Torchbearer or, or even more so, I think it's perfectly present and clear in D&D, in which the level of a spell is related in part to, or how potent a spell is, is related in part to how much space it can cover. And how much space the spells can cover is related, impacts the decisions that the players make about how they should march or where they should stand. Mm-hmm. Or don't bunch up, they might have fireballs. Yeah, And that creates this cycle that is kind of defining a, a method of thinking for that world that becomes real for that world, which is that, well, fireballs are about this big. So we want to be smarter than the person with the fireball. So we behave and move to the space differently. I mean, for example, already the fact that you might have a giant chamber in a in a catacomb is already on some level unrealistic. These are, I mean, if, if that's what you're, depending on what kind of what kind right. of catacomb you're modeling, but we don't care because there's an internal consistency to it that mm-hmm. in which the space interacts with the mechanics, interacts with the strategies, interacts with the space, and creates this little loop that reinforces itself. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always have to do that, but it's I think a great way of thinking about how. How big are the exceptions that you have to the space or how big are the exceptions that the space has to make to the fiction? A magic missile spell, for the by and large, doesn't care what the distance is. As long as we're within a certain range, we don't care about range increments. It's just if I can see that thing and it's within mm. 300 feet or whatever it is, I can hit it. And it doesn't, it'll go around corners and all that stuff. It's a simple thing. But you can have other spells that are more powerful but more finicky. And mm-hmm. space is just a great way to think about that notion of how much and how big are the alterations that you're making to your initial vision for the setting or the game based on things that you think are hard coded like well there's a mountain range here they can't get around it well if they were fifth level they could because they would all have a spell that sure. leap mountain spell or whatever you want to look for opportunities to not just say here's how place and space matter 
for this game because there's always going to be something that matters because that's just as, as humans like we need to know certain things and it helps us to know certain things how how far are these two roofs apart is it an easy or a difficult role right to jump this gap which of those are things that are on the fly which of those are things that are driven by other things in the game like oh i want this to be a hard role so right. therefore these two houses are going to be 12 feet apart and when is that something that is driving other parts of the game like when you come into this room you are now under a, a non-communication bubble and your your communicator doesn't work anymore because now we're creating this dramatic separation of the of the character from the party or whatever else needs to happen for your your game to progress I think that leads really naturally into the question and helps solidify why and how it is important to decide again between, in a way, between the real, the realistic, I have air quotes around that, the realistic and the fantastical. For example, if the notion is I want this situation to be difficult because dramatically in the timing or because I want the character, because I think they can beat it to be able to show off their ability to jump 12 feet, whatever the reason it is, space can have rules to it that we inherit from reality, which is to say, why would this street in this part of the city be 20 feet wide? What kind of street is this? And right. you can answer that with realism, or you can say, because the spaces that we're creating for so many RPGs are only so realistic. They're never realistic. They're just they're, approaching they're, realistic. They're as good as we need. Exactly. They work for us, mm -hmm. right? And so part of that notion is like, for example, if you're doing a, a, a really realistic, gritty World War One trench fighting game, but there are jetpacks because you wanted to have the ability to leap certain no man's lands or something, mm -hmm. right? You might in introduce fictional elements to remix or change or add life to space. Mm. Or you might have the space impose reality on your fictional elements in a way that says, yeah, there are elves and dwarves in my gritty realistic fairies in World War I battling it out against machines, but the, the distance between trenches, oh, not even dwarves go in there. And we way to help determine those relationships. Mm -hmm. it's kind of the, the most natural place to look for things like how finely do I need to parse space tracking isn't yeah. stuff like a combat mechanic or, or some kind of fighting system where yeah do, do you do a more narrative approach where it's more if we can yell at each other we can fight right because <laughs> right. this is a this is a, a swashbuckling movie and so you know you can cover the entire length of a ship deck in a crash cut or is it more you know it matters whether whether you're around a corner because some spells have bounce and other spells don't. So if you right. stock up on bounce spells, you can shoot lightning bolts around corners. And then that's like a character choice. And that's a, a mechanical advantage if you have planned ahead and, and done your research and, and know what you're getting yourself into. There's that, that great notion about what's movable and what's not in a sense of mm. like, you know, like the spell becomes more movable than the space because it can bounce, which I really like. But that notion of sp spaces inherently, we think of it as being immovable. Right. Right. But it's not. Yeah. We, like get destructible. To decide, that's true. we can be destructible spaces yeah. if the game has that. Or for example, what you just said makes me immediately want a game in which can I leap that distance? You can if you're in a sword fight. <laughs> but I'm not in a sword fight. Then, then you can't. Then you can't. But That's... if I'm sword fighting a dude, I can cross the length of a ship in one turn as long as I'm fighting somebody along the way. I've had a, a long running uh, half joke, half like this would be fun to play with sometime idea of where all combat ranges and all kind of spatial relationships are described by the speed of plot. How long does it take me to cross the room? Well, you, you move at the speed of plot. So if you need to get there in one turn you do oh i only move at half plot because i'm injured oh well then it's going to take you two two turns to get there because right. you know now you're a less important character so you only move at half the speed of plot i love we talked about narrative mass and so now you're getting to narrative momentum narrative velocity narrative mm -hmm. speed which i love so how how far am i from him how about a soliloquy 
physical activity of handling things at the table is also one way to draw arrows between these things. Whether it's all working together to like sketch out a map together that mm-hmm. then is going to drive play or drawing drawing the map of the dungeon as it's described to you and hoping you get it right um, and then finding out later that you got it wrong or if there's props that you move around if there's and obviously you know we're all familiar with miniatures and, and using a, a map and moving miniatures around to represent our physical space so those are all elements that that bridge this uh these two levels of the physical space and the fictional space, sometimes in this one-to-one relationship of where you have your five-foot grid, then you have your miniature and you're moving it up into the the, the theater of the mind approach where you might still have miniatures because miniatures are cool, but you're just going to like sketch out a quick thing and then like, oh, I'm over here, I'm I'm next to this thing or I'm not. And that's kind of what we need to know. We don't care if I'm five feet away from it or, or 30 feet away from it necessarily. To range bands... Like uh, Fate uses and 316 uses. And where... Fate uses uh, zones in that same category, yeah. which are really great, yeah. And 316's, uh, yeah, a uh, little range map is true. Right. All this game cares about is whether you're close, far, or too far, basically, right? Or however you want to. Uh, Aegon uses these two for mm-hmm. um, for when you go to the battle stuff and, and you're fighting the the, the Greek monsters. Um, the One Ring actually has a, a similar abstracted right, yeah. space mechanic for that, yeah. Which I really liked. I really enjoyed that when we... Yeah. That. Which 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 relates to the character role in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. You have certain actions you can only take in certain range sections. So you can cover other characters if you're in missile distance. If you're in the rearward position, mm-hmm. you can you can charge and lead them on and, and and essentially get them new get them more hit points if you're out front and doing great that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right, and your characters can be kind of optimized towards being in that front band yeah. or being in like the rear band and being more of a support role. They still have stuff to do. And without necessarily being pigeonholed in that, it's not that they're useless in other bands. They're just out of their element a little bit. Right. I love adventures and certainly also games in which the environment has specific mechanical effects. So that, for example, imagine, if you will, that that the sword fight on this burning ship has in itself as an encounter, as a, as a sword fight, a different rule than this sword fight in the sinking palace, mm-hmm. right? That the space is providing a rule. Like, so how fast can I move? Well, in this in this combat, because the ship is tilting all over the place, you can only go so far mm-hmm. in one turn. And you can kind of do that in Fate with aspects, right? Yeah. Where you can put do the, the, the scene aspects and the environment aspects to change up the environment using narrative tags, essentially. There are a lot of effective kind of hacks and tools for everything, like... Uh, a lot of your dice pool systems that are similar, like your Lady Blackbird and Always Never Now, interact with space in some interesting ways. Uh, especially in Always Never Now, we have things where the space might have tags that changes. Mm-hmm. So you can do certain things in this environment because I, my character may not be able to do it, but there's a live wire here so I can now electrocute people or whatever it is. One point that I want to touch on, though I think it's probably more than we can get into in this conversation right now. Uh, if you really want to look at where physical and fictional space are intersecting, look at LARP. Uh, both freeform style stuff where you might just use a bunch of chairs to represent spaces to the full costume parlor style where you'll have different rooms and, and the different rooms mean different things for different characters and there's props and how, you know, that, that stuff's all governed by literal space in a way that tabletop actually is not like if i want to talk to you and you're all the way across the room i have to choose whether i'm going to shout or physically cross to talk to you while in tabletop i can say oh i shout at will's character or oh i, I cross over and talk to will's character and those might mean different things depending on the context of what's going on they can use space like we were talking about time last week they can use space to provide flexibility or pressure restriction or freedom in ways, yeah, that I think are really, really positive and fruitful. Mm. 
So maybe we'll talk about that more at some other date, but uh, I didn't want anyone listening to, to, to feel like we were shortchanging LARP. It's more like they're, they're experts at this, and thus we should consider them on their own merits, I think, on, on their own strengths and merits of the form. But yes, if, you, if you've played any LARPs, you probably have some good ideas of how to bring physical space into your tabletop game. Like, for example, moving a chair to a different location, uh, standing behind someone t- to indicate that you're going to be playing their internal monologue for a little bit, that kind of thing. In my Space Marine fighter pilot game, years and years and years ago, we used to do a sequence where before big missions, I would put everybody in the kitchen and then they would mm. walk out single file into the flight deck and take their seats and arrange their character sheets and stuff and everything to get their cockpits just right. And then we would describe the takeoff and the mission and everything. Nice. While we're talking about everything from space and relationship maps and handling of dice and stuff, there's mm-hmm. also, of course, the fact that the character sheet is a space. Yes. And the way that it turns information into physical space mm-hmm. for a game. And, and I, I'm thinking about this in part because of especially things like 316 and Agon, where Agon has its right hand and left hand dice. Right. You literally have two different sets of dice for offense and defense or two weapons or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And they go on different parts of the character sheet when you're not using them. And mm-hmm. uh, Marvel does some of this. We'll deal with character sheets later, I'm sure. Right, right. But the character sheet is, is uh, I think of it often as it's the window into the game for the players, right? Often if- It's the UI. Yeah, really. it's the UI. It's, it's many to most of the people playing your game are only looking at the character sheet. There may be a reference sheet. So the, the, the physical spaces that you indicate on the sheet can end up uh, really, really affecting what people understand your game to be about. I think maybe is where I'll leave it for for this discussion. Like if you do have two big circles and that's where you keep your dice, that is different than if you have two tiny little boxes and you write the number of dice in them. And obviously a lot of this is, you know, it depends on how complicated your game is, how much reference stuff is on your sheet and that kind of thing. But you can use the physical artifacts that people are going to need to play to hook it. They're not, they don't need to be simple records. Right. Right. They can hook into... Your mechanics, your themes, your setting, your... Procedures. Yeah, your procedures. I think about when you see hit point sections on a sheet that are too small to adequately track hit points mm-hmm. so that I'm erasing a number and writing in the new one. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in the heat of combat, I want enough space so that I can just cross out one number, write in the new one, because then I can also check my math. But as an example, that's part of the phys- where physical space. If, if hit points are very small on a character sheet, and I feel like in a lot of games they are, it suggests that they are less important than than the fact that what happens in this box determines whether or not you live or die. Mm-hmm. Right, that kind of information, yeah. So character sheets, maps, which we haven't really talked about specifically, but I think you know we're, we're kind of familiar with the utility of, of a map, whether it's for evoking a sense. Like I play games, right, where there's a map and you're like, oh, cool, and it's more of about a mood. You know, it's like creating kind of a like, oh, this is the kind of world we're in. It has this kind of map. Yeah. But then you don't actually reference it or or really need it other maybe you're like oh we're in uh this town pick something off the map so down to the five foot grid map that you know you draw on with dry erase to to create your your combat encounter because you're going to go through three of these tonight so you need to you're going to need to erase it and redraw it these are all these touch points are all literally the places where you're uniting physical space and narrative space so as a designer i think one part of your process that can be really helpful is to once you've have enough going on that you know what some of those touch points are going to be what are the other opportunities afforded to you by having to have that in the first place that can be productive and maybe take advantage of the fact that it's on the table as opposed to oh it has to be on the table because someone you need somewhere to write down your character details right and what are you cementing and sort of what doors are you closing when you inherit or make assumptions about the places where narrative space and fictional space and real space collide 
and and they're going unexamined. We talk so much about reexamining things that we're either designing or things that we're inheriting or mm-hmm. what have you. But the doors that we're shutting by saying the game works at a scale of, you know, each square is going to be about five feet. And it's like, well, like always, like even in D&D, that's not, right? D&D is overland movement and stuff, but it's primarily also a game about fighting monsters and dungeons or has been in a lot of editions. Mm-hmm. Um, so D&D is a great example of depending on if you were only to inherit a third of D&D's spatial relations stuff, you would be shutting a lot of doors for your game. Like Torchbearer is, a, is terrific at being Torchbearer, mm-hmm. but Torchbearer is not so great if what you wanted to do was play a game in which you negotiate with kings for the money you bring back. Right. Because that, it's, that game is so much about that crawl. So that's a, an example where, where Torchbearer is shutting certain doors mechanically because it doesn't, it's not about what's on the other side of those doors. Right. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash wordwill. You can find all of our older episodes, as well as everything else Design Games Podcast related, at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...